With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Recovery Rockstars Uncut. Uniting the recovery community with raw and real stories. Your host, Kevin Z, puts the light on people and brands that are rocking the recovery lifestyle. So you want to be a rock superstar. RecoveryRockstars.com. Now, here's Kevin. So it is kind of funny, like we said, we, we, the last time we spoke was September 18th, I believe, and how things have changed, right? Yeah, it's so quickly, too. I'm curious to see how it's all going to play out. I'm trying not to dive too far down the rabbit hole, <laughs> but totally. there's a lot going on. So You know what's helped me? I just turn off the news. Probably not the smartest thing to do, but once I start watching, I get sucked in, and then that fear and anxiety just takes over, doesn't it? Yeah, I've been trying to choose my news sources wisely, but um, there's definitely some news sources. It's been my experience that there's a bit more fear and chaos on there rather than like, you know, seeking solutions and whatnot within. It's just kind of focused on the problem. So that's not always the case. Certainly, there's just, you know, there's so much information out there right now, especially in relation to what's going on. Yeah. Circumstances. It's, it's tricky to know like what to believe and what not to believe. So I try not to like get attached to any certain thing. It's more just like staying curious and open and staying informed. But yeah, again, there's just like, there's a balance. <laughs> so to find that balance. Tell me in this isolation, you're kind of fortunate because you're in Colorado and you live on a lake. So you get the opportunity to get outside. But for somebody who might be in isolation, I mean, what are you doing to, 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 to keep your recovery intact, to help yourself out mentally, physically? Give me some insights there. Yeah, totally. So actually, since we last spoke, we moved. We're still in Colorado, but we're okay. now in a different town. And we're more like in town, so we're more in the hub of civilization than we were before. We were super isolated. And it certainly served its purpose at the time. It was absolutely amazing. So now we're really like enjoying getting back into more civilized world and like socialization. So it's definitely interesting being back in isolation and the irony of like being in isolation in the middle of civilization now. So really it's like bringing forth those practices that help to ground me. I thought I was doing really well in the midst of everything that's happening. But then actually one of these string lights behind me busted, like it popped and it had this like, it was super loud. It scared the crap out of me. I mean, it may as well have been like a saber tooth tiger coming up behind me the way that I reacted. It was like this primal reaction here. And I'm like, okay, Apparently, I'm not as grounded as I thought. I need to incorporate some more practices to like get back to that like calm state of center. So meditation has been like super beneficial for me in the past. And what I started doing, um, and actually I've been doing this again because I stopped my meditation practice a couple months ago. I haven't been doing it as much as I should be. And uh, it's just like starting with a couple minutes and then every day building from there by a minute. So it's like two minutes Monday, next day's three minutes, so on and so forth until you get up to about 20 minutes. By the time you're at 20 minutes, it's such a gradual process that it's mm-hmm. not as like, it's not such a big deal to think about sitting still. For me, it's hard. Like I've got a freaking bouncy chair because like sitting still is not my strong point but um yeah meditation's been good it feels really great to get back into that it's been a slow process for me getting back into it so you know overall though it's been it's been great like i'm again rediscovering and being reminded of how helpful it is to just sit still go inward and just mm-hmm. be with yourself to just Love be it. with your thoughts you know that's so important because in today's world, there's so much, especially right now, right? There's a lot of fear, 
being kind of circulated and a lot of people are they're very susceptible to that but i yeah. can do it fine yeah so taking the time to like just be with yourself be just still and go inward it's been very helpful for me especially you know, I, I I'm an anxious person like I worry and so when I incorporate these practices it helps me to ground and to just like chill out <laughs> I love it yeah, yeah I found myself journaling every morning or night just get my emotions on paper reread try to see what I'm fearful from what I'm struggling with where my thoughts are and you know I try to spin it to all things positive. Let's think on the positive. Let's meditate. Let's ground ourselves. What can we learn from every day? How could this experience make us stronger? It's, uh, I'll tell you, it's been a little bit of an emotional roller coaster, though. Oh, every day is a new challenge. Right. And especially in isolation, you know, we don't have as many distractions as we did. It's interesting because when all of that is stripped away, you know, we still have the internet and we still have news, social media and all that. I mean, that in itself is a distraction, but when we're forced to just kind of like be with ourselves and there's a lot of individuals that may be listening to this, that, that don't have a, you know, we're not with a partner right now where they, they don't have a family with them right now. And it's just themselves, you know, and they're just kind of stuck inside their house. And that can be, that can be really difficult. I mean, I've been there. I was in isolation for like almost four years. I mean, I was near people, but I was by myself, like for a huge chunk of that time. So there's yeah. definitely things that help with that. And I love that you're journaling because I mean, that inspires me to pick up my journal again, because that's been very beneficial for me in the past, just to get yeah. my thoughts down. Yeah. And I don't feel like they're just kind of circulating up here, you know? Yeah. So. And it's nice to have these communities. Not only, you know, we, we try to meditate and focus on self, you know, we journal to get our thoughts out, but it's nice to be able to hop on a Zoom call or, you know, social media and just connect with those. I mean, I've been talking to friends um, that I haven't talked to in, in a couple of years because we all want to catch up and see how the families are and, you know, we're hopping on various apps that I never knew existed, like House Party, and it's nice to have that connection and technology is pretty amazing for its downfalls it's got a lot of positive aspects to it too you know it certainly does and 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 i'm glad you said that because it's really important to like use that kind of technology especially social media in a positive way so i took like a huge break from instagram for about four months actually it's funny when i came back on i realized it was four months to the day which like was not planned <laughs> but it was really helpful for me because i was spending so much time on it and i'm perfectionist to the core and I think there's like a little OCD in there too <laughs> so like with my writings I, I'm huge into writing I, I love writing absolutely and so it's really important to me how I choose to express myself and my words and like mm -hmm. what message am I choosing to get across and I will spend a long time to make sure that it's how I want to show up you know into creating these things and, and I'm talking about just like images and captions and like I know I'm not the only one who can get sucked into that so for me, I needed to take a step back and just be like, okay, how do I really want to show up right now too? For a lot of, for a lot of us, we're having to decipher like and really consider what's really important to us. Mm -hmm. like, who are we choosing to be in isolation with? What Absolutely. are we choosing to spend our free time on? Absolutely. You know, what are we choosing to stock our pantries on? I mean, there's been a lot of panic buying, right? So I mean, we're all familiar with the whole toilet paper shortage <laughs> yes we are a lot of people they realize that that is a non-negotiable in their lives like they <laughs> yeah. have to have that and, and i certainly understand that so it's like you know we're, we're being forced to really consider our needs mm -hmm. like our absolute needs and again like who knows how long this this is going to last but it's very important to to cultivate practices that help to support our well-being especially during this time Absolutely. Well, I want to get into your story here because this is huge. You've been sober since July 9th, 2016. And I know we did our top three for recovery video, which I appreciate you being on, but we didn't get into the details and the history of your story. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us about that first drink that you had. How old were you? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that was when I was 15. And I had just relocated with my family. I grew up in the suburbs of San Antonio, Texas. So I grew up kind of in a concrete jungle. And, you know, I, I had access to like this rock quarry that I discovered one day when I was young, just hiking around behind the property. And it was like this little oasis of dirt, which was a thing when you're surrounded by concrete. You find a big dirt pit. And you're like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> and it's like the best 
thing ever. So that's where I spend all of my free time. And so I've always kind of been really into nature and whatnot. And that's what sparked this kind of wildness in me, I guess. And then we ended up moving to Durango, Colorado um, when I was a sophomore in high school, like the summer right before. And for me, that was a huge move because it upended my entire life. I had the same girlfriends from like elementary school up to high school. And so I left all those friendships, all those relationships, and just moved to, from this like big suburb in a huge city to this little mountain college town. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was like a huge shift for me because I didn't know anybody. Well, I knew a few people, but not, you know, super well. I didn't have that like root of, of friendships. Yeah. Having that move in the middle of high school was like definitely a struggle. Now I did want it though. And that's like a whole nother story, but I used to be a big dancer and uh, my big dream was to get on the dance team in high school. And, and the day of tryouts came and I'd been prepping for this day for years, like literally dance classes several times a week. And it was my thing. And uh, the day of tryouts, I was going from a kick routine into a pop fly, which is where you just jump into the splits and I landed wrong. So I lost all my skill in a matter of seconds. And this was two hours before we were to get in front of the state judges to try out for the team. Oh my gosh. I didn't make it. You know, I I lost literally all my mobility and all my best friends made it. And so when my parents posed us with the idea of like, how do you guys feel about moving to Colorado? I was like, Yes, because I couldn't fathom the idea of like being in the bleachers while all my friends were performing and it was totally. heartbreaking to me. It was literally my, my first like true heartbreak. So it turned out to be a blessing because yes, I said yes to the move to Colorado and that's what kind of set me on this whole new trajectory in life. So yeah, I was 15 and I had my first drink at a party and I went to this party because it was an opportunity to meet new people in this new community that I was in, right? Like, I didn't know very many people. And my very first time drinking was actually my first time blacking out as well. So I'd always been that kind of drinker. Obviously, there's probably a little bit of anxiety. You're in a new space. You're 15 years old. You're drinking for the first time. You probably went straight to the bottle, hit it pretty oh, yeah. hard. So you're at, you're at a party, you're 15, you're having a good time, you black out, wake up the next morning, I'm sure you're a little hungover, but it's not going to stop. Uh, it's your first time. You're like, all right, how do we do this again? That was fun. Woo. Right. I came out of the shell. I met new people. Exactly. People and love me. Shell is like a great metaphor. That's exactly what happened because I've always been pretty like socially awkward. I mean, I've had social anxiety as far back as I can remember. And so when I was at this party and I discovered booze, it was like magic, man. I went from being like super shy and conserved kind of in my little you know my space so like feeling like the life of the party you know and all that happened in 0.2 seconds it only took a couple shots of vodka I mean that's how it started I mean it just continued upward from there you know and it was great for a while like a long while until it wasn't you know and it it was a huge a huge shift from enjoying myself while I was drinking to no longer enjoying myself while I was drinking and the consequences outweighed the benefits by far yeah. And it was really gradual, but it it also felt like it was happening really quick at the same time. Mm. So every time I drank, I would black out, basically. If I didn't black out, it was like this huge success for me. And I'd be really proud of myself the next day. I remember that significantly because it was such a common occurrence for me to not remember what happened the night before. Mm. That didn't stop me. Like for most people, that would. For most people, they black out once and be like, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. Who doesn't like to know what they did the day before, the night before? And, and it just, it escalated for a very long time. Um, I actually got expelled from high school when I was a junior for getting caught with like a pint of whiskey before the first bell of the day even rang. Oh, so the yeah. lid wasn't like screwed on all the way and it was leaking all through senior hall. <laughs> it was oh, bad. Wow. Yeah. So how, when, when did it go from having fun to being dark and how long were those dark days? Yeah. So I'd say there was always trouble with my drinking, like from obviously from day one, there was trouble. So, but I kept going because I was still enjoying myself while I was drinking. That lasted through high school, despite getting expelled and kicked out of school and having to go to an alternative school and like appealing and being able to go back to high school and then graduate early. Then went on to college. I went to college in the same town and was studying adventure education and later sociology. 
that first year, um, it was, I mean, I had a blast, although I was still blacking out and still doing stupid shit that I curse. I don't know if I can curse. <laughs> you can curse. But still doing things that like, okay, that I would never do sober. I mean, that was the epitome. I mean, that really summed up my days of drinking. I mean, I was doing things I would not be sober. And in a way, it was like liquid courage. I would do things that I was scared to be sober. But then there was like this darker side to it, where I did things that were out of integrity with myself and out of my principles, my values. I acted in those ways as well. Mm. And oftentimes, I didn't remember it. And someone would have to tell me the next day. And that, oh, God, it's so Cringe and shame. and Cringe, shame, guilt you know, just all of those very negative vibration emotions just overcoming me. And I lived in that vibration, so to say, for years. Mm. And I'd say after my freshman year of college is when I started to notice many more problems. You know, I actually got suspended that year in college too for drink. I like wanted to tell the story, but in a way it almost glorifies it. And there's, there was no glorification to it in the end. I mean, it was just like stupid things that you do in college, mm -hmm. get caught, and then there's consequences. So, yeah. you know, but from then on, um, I ended up moving. Uh, I took a break from college and I went down south to a little town called Patagonia, Arizona. And I was kind of at like an ashram down there. Um, mm. I did a total 180. And I wanted to get out of Colorado because I no longer wanted to give in to those patterns. And I, I didn't like the way I was living my life. So I had an opportunity through my older brother. He had some connections. Yeah, basically an ashram down in Patagonia, Arizona. It's called the Tree of Life. I'm not sure if it's still open. I was down there and basically volunteering my services, my time uh, around the property for just in exchange for raw vegan meals and evening meditations and a little simple up on the hill. <laughs> So it was a very huge shift from my previous lifestyle. And for a while, it was amazing. It was great. Like I was, I was living in a much healthier way. I was much more mindful of how I was spending my time and what I was putting in my body. At the same time, that urge to drink started to come up more and more. And I lived like 20 miles from the border of Mexico. I mean, Nogales was right there. So I remember for my 19th birthday, me and a girlfriend like went across the border and uh, we wanted to have margaritas at this little restaurant. And after that, I mean, that like having alcohol again kind of sparked this desire to drink again, right? Yeah. It's just like yeah. I think it's my lip. I'm like, oh, I miss this feeling. And being that close to Mexico, it was easy to get, you know, because I was still underage at the point. Um, I started to embrace drinking again while I was down there. When you moved to Patagonia and you uh -huh. said you kind of shifted and you did the 180. Were you essentially, I don't want to say you got sober, but you just stopped drinking altogether. Yeah, then, I did. Uh, one experience on your 19th birthday, you went to Nogales and it opened the floodgates. Yep. Oh. And that is what, to, and I found this to be a pattern throughout my days of drinking, mm. even when it gets really dark, which I'll get to, you know, a little later on, but that was my pattern. One drink. And that was it for me. You know, for me, it was like, okay, well, I've already had a sip. I might as well go yeah. all the way, yeah. you know? It was all or nothing, and it's always been all or nothing for me, and everything I do, actually. Yeah. It's definitely a pattern. So then after that, Margarita, then you were going down to Nogales. So you were living a life of calmness and meditation, and then at night, you go across the border and have cocktails? Yeah, <laughs> yeah long... basically. Yeah, so two conflicting lifestyles. Right, and it just continued to escalate, so... I had the, I had, you know, I tasted the alcohol and I wanted more and I, and I wanted to incorporate back to my lifestyle, but I knew that in the community that I was in, which had accountability, my older brother was there and he's like my biggest role model in life. So mm. I didn't want to let him down. I didn't want other people to know because keep in mind, I'm in a community of people that are very disciplined in their practices yes. and their practices of meditation and their practices of diet and well-being through food through how they spend their energy. They're very, very mindful. And so for me to now have this like growing shadow self coming out again, I wanted to keep it a secret, but I still wanted to feed it in ways that wouldn't compromise my relationships. So I decided, I'd actually met a couple when I was driving uh, back to Patagonia from the Gallus. I was on the road and I met, I saw a couple hitchhiking on the side of the road. And I wasn't able to pick them up. I kept driving and get to Patagonia. And like an hour later, I'm like longboarding around town and I see them sitting on a bench. Like they made it. So I befriended them. They're around my age. I've always had an infatuation with that lifestyle on the road. So they were telling me stories that evening and it just started to like 
these seeds that were planted a long time ago started to just like grow to the point where I couldn't contain them. I wanted that lifestyle. I wanted to experience what that was like. And I knew doing so, I'd be able to leave my responsibilities behind without consequence. And I'd be able to maintain that integrity with my relationships because no one would be witness to my lifestyle. So I decided then to put a plane in motion to hitchhike across the country. And I actually did it. I started in Patagonia and we went up north. I was with two, two guy friends that I trusted really well. There was no romanticism right. with them at all it was just like events because I knew hitchhiking alone as a woman would be a very bad idea and I didn't want to put myself in that situation so uh, we started down in Patagonia and we went up to California uh up and down the coast a ways so we were in Santa Barbara we were in LA for a while and I really got to know different uh, personality types and a lot of different individuals on the road as you can imagine I met many veterans that suffered from mental illnesses that were unable to find support in their community. And because of their mental illnesses, like a couple of them had schizophrenia. So they literally like they wouldn't, they, they couldn't get hired anywhere. No one would hire them. So they were forced due to lack of support in their communities to resort to living on the streets. And it was really sad to witness that because they were some of the most amazing individuals I've ever met in my whole life. Yeah. So I met a lot of people like that. I also met a lot of other kids, you know, my age, younger than me, that just wanted to, like, escape the matrix, so to say. Mm. During that whole time that I was on the road, I mean, the main, one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to do this trip was not only for the adventure, but also because I could drink without consequence. People don't question what you're doing. You can do whatever you want and get away with it. And that's what I, and I was willing to sacrifice the comforts of everyday life and separate myself from those relationships in order to pursue you know, my desire to drink without judgment and without consequences. And that's how bad, like it was starting to get for me. And I justify that lifestyle through, oh, I'm doing it for the adventure. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, that was not my only motivation. Right. You know, I wanted to be able to drink whiskey and, and not have to worry about what others thought of me. Wow. So I did that for about six weeks. We were in California for a while. Then we went across the country to Tennessee and we ended up at Bonnaroo Festival. We were, we were drinking the entire time. I mean, you know, and by the time Bonnaroo Festival was over, I was just, I was dirty. I was like covered in the, it's like road grind. I mean, it's like, it sticks to you. It's really, it's like, it's gross. You know, I was literally like the epitome of homelessness at this point. So the romanticism behind hitchhiking and the whole adventure had accumulated to now me being at the end of it, wondering what the hell I've been doing, mm. why, deciding I didn't want to continue to live this way. Like I got it out of my system. I just wanted to come back to civilization and be like a, a contributing member of society. And I'm blessed in the, in the way that I had the opportunity, like I had the choice to mm. leave that lifestyle and come back to you know, being a, an active member in communities. But a lot of people that I met out there, they, they didn't necessarily have that option. You yeah. know, they have to resort to that as like their, their last, you know, that was like their last resort. And a lot of them were also alcoholics that chose to live that life because it was free of responsibility. And at the same time, many of them weren't. Many of them just, you know, they were making the best of their circumstances. And yeah, it was, it was an eye-opening um, opportunity for me because one, I was able to see what, you know, the, the truth behind a lot of our, our veterans and what they have to resort to because of a lack of support in their communities. And two, I, I didn't just come home with the grit and dirt all over me and, you know, just like fatigue and all of that. I came back with a drinking problem that I could no longer ignore. I mean, my mm -hmm. drinking went from just like being you know, occasionally, like I could justify it to on the weekends and I could justify it to is my first year of college. But now it was more like I started to feel the need to have it to, to just go about my day. So to say. Right. it became more of a necessity than it did a want or desire. So when you said you got ingrained back in society, where did you end up landing? And then you're saying that you knew you had a problem that you had to, to take care of. So how did you, did you go to AA? Did you go to a treatment center? How did you actually end up getting help? Not for many years. I had a lot more years and they got darker and darker as the years went on and I continued to drink. So 
when I was done with hitchhiking, I, I got back to Arizona and I was back in Patagonia and I decided to go back to school in Durango, which is where I used to live. Mm -hmm. I went back to school and I started studying sociology because, you know, my time on the road, I like opened my eyes to a lot on a societal level. So I started so studying sociology, but at the same time, like I continued drinking. So it wasn't just every weekend, it was every day. Mm. So I found ways to get, you know, until I turned 21, I was finding ways that I could get hard booze because I didn't really like beer. It took too long to get drunk. <laughs> like I needed the hard stuff. And so that continued for a while. And then um, after a really rough breakup in 2012, I ended up moving to Sedona, Arizona. And again, did a 180 in my lifestyle. Mm. So now I'm in Sedona and I'm working at a rejuvenational center with these individuals that became my family. And to this day, I still consider them family. And they really helped me through some really dark times because I, uh, I got back into more mindful practices there. I got back to, you know, being mindful of what I was putting into my body and like helping others to cleanse as well. So, but the irony there is that I ended up drinking again, like not in any of these times that I taken breaks from drinking, was it ever thought that I wanted that to be permanent? Hmm. It was more just like resetting, yeah. you know, taking a break and seeing if I I could maintain it, but it wasn't a commitment by any means. Actually, if I'm being honest with myself, I'd say each time I stopped or took a break, I had every intention of drinking again. Yeah. So it was more just a way for me to like reset. And, you know, with, with each big move, I had hoped that I would develop a and adopt a healthier lifestyle and be able to maintain it. I really did have high hopes that I could do that. And I would grasp onto those hopes like it was my lifeline. Because I knew deep down, I knew where this road would go if I continued to drink the way that I was. But it wasn't at the point where I was willing to really look at it and acknowledge it. Like I wasn't at that point yet. And I wouldn't be for a few more years. So in Sedona, I like kept drinking. It, it started to turn into every day again. And then I got into another. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The relationship moved back to Durango for that relationship. And then that was another rough break, like, I don't know, eight months later or so. And at that point, I ended up in Colorado Springs, where I moved to be with my best friend. And uh, she and I were living together for a while. And, like, at this point, I was still drinking every day. Like, that was one of the main reasons why my relationships were failing was because I put alcohol above everybody else. Like, it was always my number one priority. And uh, I was in Colorado Springs for about a week or maybe two weeks when I got a phone call that my sister had committed suicide. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and so she had also had a problem with drinking for many, many years. Um, she, she underwent some extreme trauma when she was younger and it stuck with her. I mean, for those of us that have been through trauma, we know that it, it takes a lot of work to be able to address that. It doesn't just go away. I mean, it's, it's kind of always there with you yeah. uh, to a certain extent, depending on how much you're working on it, you know, but, but even so there's still residue of trauma. And so she had these demons and actually she called them her demons that she was unable to defeat. And so one night she had relapsed. She, she, I think for the longest time that she was sober, I later found out from her life was like maybe two to three years that she was able to, to maintain. And so her relapses got worse and worse. And on one of, you know, the ultimate relapse is when she, she wrote a note that said, I just can't do it anymore. And she went into the, into her backyard and she ended it. And so for me, that was a huge wake up call because I, I hadn't known how, how much she was suffering. No one did. And that's how it is oftentimes with suicide is that no, it's a surprise to everybody. So, um, but even then my way to cope with it, the day I found out was to go get drunk and stay drunk. Like I did not want to be sober anymore. And so it had like kind of the opposite effect that I think it would have had. Individuals, that may have been a wake up call for them. Like I'm not touching it again. I don't want to go down that road. And for me, it was like, I need to drown my emotions. I yep. need to drown these feelings. I need Stay. to drown this grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually didn't feel that grief until 
2016 when I got sober. So that was 2013 when she took her life. Wow. And so after that, I was just going down a very dark path. Like I, I literally didn't, I didn't allow myself to draw a sober breath for quite some time. And my best friend that I was living with at the time noticed this. And as any good friend would do, she reached out to my folks and was like, Hey, I'm really worried about your daughter. I don't know what's happening. I don't know if, you know, if she's constantly drinking or if it's just on her breath from the night before. It wasn't on my breath from the night before. It was on my breath like beginning as soon as I woke up because I was drinking that early. And so, um, anyways, my family rallied together and my older brother, who again, my role model was able to, um, basically was able to get me into a program that he was, he was working at as a, as an MD down in, um, Sedona. So I went into a rehab program for about six weeks. I did great. I felt great. The only thing was that now I'm starting to have to process all these emotions that I spent a decade drowning, you know? So there was a lot coming up, but you know, being in that kind of controlled environment and having that level of accountability all around me, and these expectations of myself that I literally couldn't break, even if I wanted to. I mean, well, maybe if I tried hard enough, I probably could have found ways around. If I really wanted to drink, I probably could have found a way to get it. But I didn't because I, I wanted to get better. I mean, this was at a point where I truly wanted to get better. And I had high hopes that I could. And six weeks, you know, after I graduated from that program, I made it a couple weeks maybe. And then it was right back into drinking. And it all started with a thought. It was just, I wonder how some wine would feel right now or how some whatever would feel right now. And I didn't act on that thought for maybe a week. And then eventually I did. And, you know, there's a saying that in the recovery community, I'm sure you've heard it, that you pick up right where you left off before. It was exactly like that. It wasn't just like, okay, I've gone X amount of time without alcohol and like, you know, I'll be able to erase some of the damage that I did to my, to my mind, my patterns and my body. And it's not like that regardless of how X amount of weeks that went by or months without drinking, it was, it was right back into an even more debaucherous and harmful drunk than before. Oh my gosh. Man. Oh, and then how long did that last? That lasted for, so let's see, that's 2014. So that lasted for another two years. And in that span of time, I'll quickly sum up, but I, I uh, was drinking from morning to night at this point, and I didn't allow myself to draw a sober breath. At one point, I actually, during 2014, I went on two really big trips. One of them was down to Peru to fill a, film a couple documentaries on plant medicine, and my older brother's really involved in that scene. So I went down to Peru, and did these documentaries, one was with Ayahuasca, and then another one was with San, San Pedro or Huachuma. And both of those had a significant impact on me moving forward. Mm. So disclaimer, I am not like, <laughs> I'm not telling anyone to go out and try plant medicine. I'm not suggesting that they do. What I am saying though, is just, you know, um, like from my personal experience, it was huge in my recovery. Interesting. So I was able to see like from my very first journey with ayahuasca, I actually had my very first panic attack ever. And it was the longest night of my life. And I truly thought I was dying, which is actually pretty common with ayahuasca. It's also called the little death or the vine of death. So I I experienced what I thought was death. Like I really thought that was my last night on earth. Every breath I took, I thought was my last breath. And that went on for like 10 hours. Oh my God. It was terrifying. And I must say that I went into that experience way out of integrity with myself, out of integrity with that medicine. And out of integrity with the facilitator in the group, because little did they know that I had already been drinking before that ceremony. Mm. And I wasn't planning to go into the ceremony. It was a spontaneous decision that I made after someone extended an invitation to me to join without knowing that I was under the influence. Mm. So I said yes on a whim. And as soon as you know, I drank the medicine and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, I don't feel anything. Like maybe I'll be all right. And then it just hit me like a freight train you know, in this, this panic experience for a long time. Now, the beauty of that is that after I went down to Peru to work more with these plants, um, I was able to get a glimpse of my life if I were to continue to go down that path. And I, and I knew I, it wouldn't end well, and it would end soon. And so I also got a glimpse of this knowing that I had what it took to stop drinking. All I had to do was make that choice. It was literally, it was just a choice. 
mm. to keep drinking or to stop drinking. And I wasn't ready to make that choice for like another year, but I was able to see, you know, I had these, these two paths, right? Yep. One was dark and one would ultimately lead to light. Um, after those Peru documentaries, I went sailing um, around Sri Lanka, conducting marine conservation uh, research around, around sperm whales and blue whales. Experience was about a five month long experience. And I thought that, you know, putting myself into an environment like being isolated on a boat would keep me from drinking, you know, and, and deep down, if I'm honest with myself, that's one of the reasons I said yes to doing this. But in reality, when you want it enough, you're able to get it. Like it, yeah. that's just how it is. You have to make the choice to not do it anymore until it's actually going to happen. You have to make that choice for yourself. And so um, during that time on the boat, I was just like, I was like a hurricane that hit the crew. I mean, I was an absolute mess. And I did a lot of things that were, that I would never do sober. And, you know, I, I believe that I had affected everyone's experience due to the ways that I was acting. Mm. And so, I mean, I'm out in this pristine place. I mean, on the ocean with these amazing people conducting this amazing research. And I wasn't able to be a part of the research as much as I wanted to. But towards the end of my trip, I was able to get really involved. And it was like phenomenal. I mean, that's what I should have been doing the whole time. But I sold myself short because I thought, okay, I have culinary skills. That's all I have to contribute. So I'll step into this position. And I learned by doing that, like never sell yourself short with what you think you can offer. Because we can offer so much more than what we may think. Yeah. And a lot of it involves a learning curve, but it's so worth it. So anyways, um, I ended up jeopardizing a very dear friendship of mine during that time. And, you know, I still, I, I feel like it still has put a lot of tension in that friendship. And, you know, we used to be very close, but like the ways that I was acting and the things that I was doing and like compromising the integrity of the research and the safety of the crew because when you're out at sea and you're drinking and like you're in these huge swells like you may not be able to be found in big swells and whatnot and so i mean there was a couple of times when i was under the influence in those circumstances oh and gosh. it was just uh, ah yeah. yeah i mean when i say hurricane i mean like i was hurricane. like a hurricane yeah we're not messing around here no, we're not. So now we're, we're gearing up to like the darkest days and we're gearing up to the moment where I decided that I needed to stop. If I wanted to live. I had to stop. After I got off the boat in Sri Lanka, I ended up encountering more trauma on my way to the airport. And I won't get too much into that. But what I will say is that it had such an impact on me that it was very difficult for me to want to be present and to want to feel the emotions that were coming up. And my the, the first thing that I did anytime I felt uncomfortable was drink so I got off the plane I'm stateside again and I decide I want to just peace out I don't want to like be around anybody and I want to be able to drink and continue drinking without judgment and without responsibilities and consequences so it's very similar to the state of mind that I had when I was hitchhiking but this time I decided I wanted to live out of a tent in this little town that's like 9,000 feet in elevation, high up in the San Juan Mountains, and just check out. And so I stayed drunk. And I'm not joking. Like, that is just not an exaggeration. I did not draw a sober breath for three months during wow. that time. And that was like the summer of 2015. So it got to a point where I needed to have alcohol in order to function. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have alcohol, I would start to get the shakes. And I would start to my perceptions would be compromised like I couldn't trust what I was hearing or seeing and I couldn't trust I certainly couldn't trust my thoughts it was like a reality it was just in a fog and so um after that summer and I'm still living in the tent and uh I decided like I I, I had to stop because at the at that time I was also working as a wilderness guide in Utah so I was starting to no wait that wasn't done yet Okay, so sorry, those years are all kind of like, crazy. <laughs> so what I remember is I got a phone call, um, or no, I had reached out to my friend in Sedona that owned the rejuvenation center that I used to work at. And she said something that always stayed with me. She was just like, after I told her what was going on with me, she said, okay, do you want to come home? Are you ready to come home? But keep in mind, this is like my family. So I just like started bawling at that moment because mm. she knew 
she knew like how I was. She knew my state of mind. She knew where I was at. And she still invited me to come back into their space so that they could mm -hmm. help me so that I would be able to heal. And again, for a while that worked until it didn't. I started drinking again. And that's when my um, state of states of panic started to really accumulate. So every time I drank, I would get a panic attack and I would stay in this state of panic the entire time that I was under the influence. But if I wasn't under the influence, I would have the shakes and I would start to experience DT, which is delirium tremens, which is basically where you're starting to hallucinate and you're starting to see and hear things. You just can't trust your reality. You can't trust what you're hearing and seeing. And that is a terrifying. So frightening. Yeah. I literally thought I was going crazy because I didn't yeah. know that I was experiencing DTs. I thought I was actually losing my mind. I knew it was related to alcohol, but now I was in this vicious cycle where if I didn't drink, I would have these extreme symptoms of DTs. And that's basically like very extreme cases of withdrawal. And the shakes were like unbearable. It's like a vicious cycle every single day. I mean, you've got your DT and you have exactly. to drink and then, yeah, sober up and here you go again. It's crazy. So how, how did you right. finally stop? I mean, what, what did you do to put your foot down and say, I can't do this anymore? Well, what it took was I started working as a wilderness guide in Utah and I had to get my shit together for that job. So now I'm working with teenagers in the wilderness of Grand Staircase Escalante. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of liability with that. You've got to be present. And so... You know, I was able to keep it together for a while. Like it got to the point actually, um, well, let me backtrack a little bit because I left out a really big part. So in Sedona, when I'm having these BTs, these extreme symptoms, I ended up having a dream one night and the dream like woke me the F up because it was basically kind of like what ayahuasca had shown me in the past. The details of the dream are, are pretty far out, but what I would say is that the message got across to me that if I keep drinking, I'm going to die. And there was no doubt about it in my mind. I woke up and I was like, oh my God, my life is going to end. I'm literally drinking myself to death. And I was able to ignore that thought for a while. But after that dream, I saw it so clearly. It was almost like a waking dream, but I was like shown the ultimate demise, so to say. And I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die, especially from alcohol. Like I didn't, I didn't want to leave that impact on the world. I didn't mm. want to be, you know, I just didn't want that to be my end. <laughs> and I didn't feel like it was supposed to be. And so the other aspect of my dream was like, okay, if I, I can stop and I'll have support if I stop, I just need to make that choice. So the next morning I went to my very first 12 step meeting in Sedona and I kept going after that for about three months. And I decided that I wanted to uh, get back out into nature because even though I was living in a little cabin, like off of Oak Creek, south of Sedona, actually a cabin that I helped my brother build. He did most of it. He did a lot of it, actually. And it was like, it's phenomenal. But I, I was like feeling this, this very strong pull to get back out into nature. And so I applied to be a wilderness guide in uh, this little outfitter out, outside of Kanab, Utah, and I got accepted. So I went through the training and I'm still sober at this point. I've got maybe three or four months sober. Now it was, it was amazing because I'm being of service to others like teenagers and helping them through similar patterns that I could, you know, start to see in them from when I was that age. Mm. So sharing my experience with them and just kind of like planting seeds where I can, you know, to, to like deter them from that path. I mean, they're out there in this program for a reason. And uh, so we worked out there for two week long shifts that were just out there in the backpacking for the whole time. I don't have much contact with the outside world. But now the other side of that was that we also had two weeks in between our shifts of just off time. So I had the brilliant idea to, <laughs> that is very sarcastic, to commute back to Colorado. And that's where I spent my off shifts. It was actually not just back to Colorado, but in that same spot that I camped and didn't draw a sober breath for three months. I was in that oh, wow. exact same campsite. Now, why did I choose to go back? for that lot too. I mean, and I was trying to stay sober too. So very important lesson that I learned was to not compromise your sobriety by going back to old locations that you drank to, you know, old hanging grounds and like with the same people that you would drink with, at least not for some time. Because that like putting myself in that situation and my early sobriety was like the worst thing that I could have done. And needless to say, I ended up relapsing. Mm. And it was worse than it was before, if you can imagine that. My DTs were worse. The shakes were worse. Like, 
the hangovers were were terrifying. And, and I don't know another word to describe that. It was literally like terror. I was living in a world of, of terror within my mind. So eventually, um, 4th of July comes and goes. Now in this little mountain town that I was currently in, 4th of July is a huge deal. I mean, fireworks are just a very big happening in this town because it's, it's a little valley surrounded by these huge peaks. So right. you can imagine the fireworks just like thunder off of the peaks. It's really yeah. epic. So there's like, I mean, the town goes from like maybe a thousand people to like close to 10,000 people overnight. It gets packed. So I was there for the 4th of July. And then a couple of days later, I just continued drinking because it was better at that point for me to be drunk, even given the symptoms of being drunk than it was to be sober because of the effects that it would have on me. The withdrawal symptoms were so extreme. I mean, again, I'm talking about the terror and the panic and the, the DT and all of that. So I stayed drunk for another couple of days. And my one of my other very dear friends had come up from Durango to Silverton, where I was. That's the name of the town. And she basically saw me and, like, she got very worried about me because of the way that I was when I was drinking. I, I guess I was, like, dancing around the campfire and, like, drawing the eyes of people who probably didn't have the best intentions. And she was really worried about me. So she actually called my parents the next day and was like, look, I'm worried about your daughter. And again, this is the second phone call that they have gotten like this in the span of like three years. And they know that it's bad. And so when they came up, they surprised me at my campsite. And they were so loving and compassionate in the way that they approached me, even though I was like, when they came into my campsite, I was trying to drink the air. And I say trying because I was experiencing the shakes and the DTs were starting to come on, like the early onset of them. And I knew all too well what that felt like. And I couldn't get the beer down because my body was literally rejecting it. I couldn't take a sip of beer because my body wasn't allowing to. Jeez. And that was the last sip that I have taken or, or tried to take. And so from then, um, my parents sat down around my campfire and they're talking to me in a really loving and compassionate way. Now, had they approached me in another state of mind, like say they were really upset or like really, you know, like negative emotions, I'm not sure how I would have reacted to that. Because at that point, I, I wanted to stop drinking so bad, but I was terrified to because of the three days that would follow after. People actually can die from alcohol withdrawals. Yeah. There's not many withdrawals that you can die from. And alcohol withdrawals is one of those. And I was terrified that I wouldn't make it for those three days. I made it out the other side. It was not pretty. It was terrifying as hell. Like one of the scariest experiences of my life, but I was able to make it through. And I was done. I was not going to put myself through that again. And I wasn't going to put my family and my loved ones through that again. But I had gotten to the point where I was doing it now for myself. I was quitting drinking for myself, not for anyone else. Because I had gotten to the point where I was literally scared for my life. And that's what it took. Unfortunately, that's what it took. And for a lot of individuals, that's what it takes. Wow. So you've got to hit rock bottom before you can eventually climb back up. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say. It's terrible, but I'm here. <laughs> ah, oh, my God. That is insane. It's just crazy how this addiction can control you. And, I mean, listening to your story, you've got just history it, it's it's mind-boggling what you've experienced, what you've seen in life, what you've been through. And the thing I love most about this platform is to see where people are at now. Because looking at you, you look healthy, you look happy, you're articulate, you get life, you appreciate life. But I couldn't imagine what it was like seeing you three years ago in a tent or dancing around a campfire and just not being here, not being present, completely out of your mind, you know, suffering from DT. It's just, I, I love hearing your story from where you were and seeing your face right now as we're doing the Zoom call and seeing where you're at. And you can just tell you can appreciate life and you have so much zest for life and love for yourself and love for those around you. So thank you for sharing your story. But I wanna ask you, so if you can sum up in one word, your life in active addiction, what would it be? Darkness. It was, it was just tinged with darkness. Now, something I left out real quick is that during those DTs, I would literally see demons crawling towards me. Oh my God. Like actual yep. shadow demons, like crawling towards me. So when I say it was terrifying, I mean, it was terrifying yeah. because it felt like in those DTs, I was so close to the other side 
like the veil was just thinner. Mm. And this might sound nuts, but I really feel like the veil was so thin during that time that it almost opened up something to allow these these shadows in. Wow. And you know, for whatever reason, they weren't able to actually reach me. I mean, they were literally within two inches of me. And, and I had crazy. that experience every time that I was in DT. So, I mean, it That's was crazy. really terrifying. It was very, very dark. Dark. So if you can summarize in one word your life in recovery, what would that word be? Light. The exact opposite. It would be light. Oh, that's beautiful. Darkness and light. Yeah. I mean, it, it truly is. Because now I, I have a will to live again. I mean, there mm. were times when it was really dark that I just waved my golden ticket. Like, take me. I, this, this, I, I really didn't think I'd make it through some, some, time. some nights were just that dark. Yeah. And now on the other side of it, it's like the sun, it feels like the sun is shining on my face again. And I mm. have the will to live. You know, when mm-hmm. I have these amazing relationships, I'm in a, a wonderful marriage with an amazing man who is also in recovery. We have, we get to share that together. My life is so much richer mm-hmm. today than it ever has been. A very important aspect of that is that I needed to have that experience. I needed to go through all that I did and feel that kind of darkness in order to be where I am today and appreciate where I am today and appreciate life on the levels that I do. And now mm-hmm. I'll be able to help others through that darkness. You know, because there's something to be said. When, when you go through it yourself, you can relate. You can, yep. you're, you're a living example of like, you can get through this. Yeah. you think you can't, like I'm here to tell you, you can. Love it. If somebody wants to connect with you, how can they find you? So I'm back on Instagram now. And <laughs> yeah, it actually feels good to be back. My uh, handle is at Wild Recovery. And um, also, I work for an amazing organization called Being True to You, and we focus on transformational recovery. So that website is Being True to You, and my email is Megan at BeingTrueToYou.com. Megan, thank you for being on the Recovery Rockstars Uncut podcast and sharing your story. I mean, seriously, you're such a rock star. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kevin. It's really been such a pleasure, especially to connect with you after the span of time in light of our current circumstances. I'm I'm so grateful for you and the work that you're doing and, you know, allowing this platform for others to come on and be able to share stories of their strength and hope and, you know, share their experiences as well. Because, you know, for you having this as an offering to the community is huge, especially right now, right? Like everything's online. So thank you so much for just allowing, you know, us to connect and for so many others to come together. Well, thank you. And I, I kind of sum it up like this in a world that's so dark right now, it's nice to have this light and to be able to spread the message of hope. So thank you for being an absolute hope dealer. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Thank you so much. Thanks for being in recovery, rock stars. I guess today's episode is done. In all seriousness, though, Kevin appreciates you being part of this community. Recoveryrockstars.com. Want to email us? Kevin at recoveryrockstars.com. Facebook, Recovery Rockstars. Instagram us at Recovery Rockstars. Kevin's wardrobe brought to you by Kevin. Kevin's transportation brought to you by Kevin. Kevin's cable bill paid by Kevin so he can keep this podcast going. Goodbye.